The rest of us will continue on our series on foundations of the Christian faith, as we started a few months ago. Um, and uh, Lord willing, we may finish today. You know, but I have a feeling he's not willing. Uh, but Lord willing, we'll finish it today, or at least next time we meet for Sunday school. Uh, and... We're, we've been talking about doctrines that are foundation of the Christian faith, and since I believe that the Bible teaches a Reformed view of the Christian faith, then this, these foundational doctrines are going to be in line with the Reformed faith as well. And lately we've been looking at God's plan of salvation. Uh, we've, from beginning to end, redemption accomplished and redemption applied. And God's plan of salvation takes a person from being dead in his or her sins and brings him or her to glory from beginning to end is God's doing that and we have spent the last uh, few weeks studying the journey from sinfully dead to righteously alive that's a journey that we've been going through in Sunday school and today ish we arrive at the destiny uh, of the child of God which is glorification the final divine act on behalf of the believer. Uh, just as a, by way of review, we've been looking at the doctrine of salvation, as, or to use a theological term, soteriology. And uh, we've been looking at the order in which these things happen. And as I keep on saying, we're looking at a logical order, not necessarily a calendar order time. These are things that uh, logically happen. Some of, a lot of them are happening at the same time. And uh, it's been called historically the Ordo Salutis there. These are the things that we've, the crossed uh, ones is the ones that we've been uh, looked, that we have looked already uh, through this, uh, this, this series there. And Lord willing, today we're going to look, finish the perseverance of the saints and glorification. And as you remember from last week, we're looking at perseverance of saints because sanctification is just that. As we grow progressively in, uh, to become more and more like Jesus Christ, God is persevering, is preserving us to the end. <clears throat> it's interesting that the order of salutis and the doctrines of grace, what's being known as the five points of Calvinism, are so interwoven that they can't really be separated. When you're looking at how God works to save somebody, uh, these, these truths about the sovereignty of God in redeeming people are so present that uh, they cannot be separated. And that's why in talking about sanctification, we need to talk about what the Bible teaches about the preservation of perseverance of the saints to the end. And we're going to today uh, look at how these two are related in the scriptures as we began last week and Lord willing and with um, glorification today. So grab your Bible. And or a device that you use as a Bible, and turn to John chapter 3, as we look at the scriptural basis for the preservation of the perseverance of the saints. And I want to start by what the Bible teaches concerning eternal life. Uh, the Bible talks about the believer having e eternal life. Time and again, God promises eternal life to those who put their faith in Christ. 
in probably the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16. There, we, whether it's John's commentary on what Jesus just said or Jesus' words, it says this, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever perishes in Him should not perish, whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Everlasting life, eternal life. That's the result of believing in Jesus Christ. Not a maybe eternal today and not tomorrow, but eternal life as a result of faith in Jesus Christ. Look at uh, verse 36 of the same chapter. It says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Again, this idea of having eternal life uh, as being a consequence of immediate faith, an immediate consequence of faith in Jesus Christ. So that we're not going to lose that. We're going to continue to eternal life. Look at chapter 5, verse 24. This is Jesus speaking again. He says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to, into life. Do you notice that in both in verse 36 and in 5.24, John says, or the Bible says, that the believer has eternal life. It's not something that's in his future. It's not something that he gets if he arrives at the end. At the moment one believes in Jesus, he has eternal life. And it's not a, it's not a big comfort that if, if you have eternal life now, but in the next minute you may not have. If that's the case, you didn't have it just a minute ago. Uh, it, it's, it's, there's no comfort in that, and, and God means that in the Bible as a comfort. The life that is given by Jesus is forever. So it's not like somebody's going to lose it because it is forever Life is not a temporary forever life. It's a forever, forever life. All right? Are you, are you with me so far? Okay. Um, E.H. Uh, e. Palmer, I was going to say B.M., but it's E.H. Palmer, uh, in his little book on the five points of Calvinism, contrasts the Armenian position, or the one that denies that the believer has eternal life at the moment of faith, uh, to the Reformed faith. And he says this, now this is contrary to the word of God. Jesus says that whosoever believes on the Son shall never perish. But the Armenian says, wait and see, maybe he will go to hell. Jesus says he has eternal life. But the Armenian says, no, for some it is only temporal life. Jesus says if a man eats of this bread, he will live forever. The Armenian says, maybe Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he dies, yet he will, will he live. And whoever lives and believes on me will never die. Never, says Jesus, possibly, says the Armenian. And we tend to say, yes, you know, we, the Armenian is wrong on this, 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 this point. Saints will persevere. We like the idea of eternal security. We like the idea of, of, of once saved, always saved. But this is only true if the other four points that we already discussed are also true. There's no such... There's the, they exist. I'm not saying they don't exist. But it's a complete inconsistent position to say that you're a four-point Calvinist or a three-point Calvinist or 
a one-point Calvinist. They exist. They're out there somewhere. And they may even be in here. But it is an illogical position. To the point that I said in the past, in arguing with somebody about that, they turned to me and said, I know that your position is logical, but God is not a God of logic. God is not a God... And once you get to that point, then you, say, you just throw your hands up in the air and just keep on, keep on praying for the person. Because that means that any reasonable arguments won't make any sense. Right? Reading the Bible and showing how it, God works out won't make any sense. So at that, that point, and I think Proverbs 26 comes in and you don't answer a fool according to his folly uh, there. So, so the thing is that the constant use of the word eternal should bring joy to all believers because God really means it. It's not just a, um, a meaningless word that he puts there. So the first thing we see in the scriptural basis for this idea that God is going to preserve his people to the end is how he promises eternal life to them. Those who believe immediately upon faith, they receive eternal life. Another way we can, another thing we can look at is the will of the Father. Look at John chapter ten. Oh, sorry, John chapter six, and look at verse thirty-nine. There it says. This is the will of my Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. What is Jesus saying here? So he's saying that the Father has given him a group of people, and all those that the Father has given to him will come to him, and that same group that the Father gave to him will be risen on the last day. No difference in those groups. Same group that was given to Jesus by the Father will come to Jesus. That's the same group. And that same group will be raised up in the last day. So the will of the Father is that none of the elect be lost. And the will of the Father is that all of the elect be saved and persevere to the last day. And to say that then if somebody comes truly to faith and then doesn't persevere to the end, is to see that somehow God was not powerful enough to accomplish His will. If that's the case, we might as well just eat, drink, and be merry, because there's no real hope of promise in anything that God said that He's going to do. Any question? Yes? He, he, he does that by only speaking about the disciples. It's in the section of prayer that he's praying for the disciples. That he says that all that you gave to me came to me except for the son of perdition and so on. So in that section of the prayer, he's actually praying for the 12 uh, disciples there. Any other questions before we continue? Another way to see that the Bible teaches this, this idea that the saints will persevere to the end because God is going to preserve them is the guidance of the good shepherd. Turn to John chapter 10. And I'm trying to keep most of our past, my reference to the Gospel of John that way this concise and it's something that you can go back and look at. <clears throat> look at John 10, 28 and 29. 
Well, let's start at verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. And that, that's the very argument that Jesus is making, that God is of such power that no one can take one of his elect, one of his children, one of his sheep away from him. When, as I mentioned before, the proper question is not, is not can a Christian lose his salvation? That, that's asked, but that's not really the question that we're asking when we're asking that question. What, the question we're asking is that can God lose one of his people? Can somehow someone either snatch somebody from the hand of God or snatch himself out of the hand of God there? So that is something that we have to consider. The shepherd here gives eternal life. They will never perish. No, the good shepherd will not let any sheep be snatched from his hand. And the Father will secure the salvation of the sheep as he um, goes on here. I'll try to get the slides back up, but we'll see if they will come back. Another, so eternal life, the will, uh, the will of the Father, the, 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 uh, the, the, the good shepherd who says that my sheep will hear my voice, they'll come to me and I'll give them eternal life. But then the power of God. The power of God to preserve people, which we have been alluding to as well. And we're going to go out of Peter and uh, out of John here. And you can, you can either turn to it or you can listen to what I am going to say. Uh, in 1 Peter 1, verses 4 and 5, Peter is, says this. says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. So this is what God has done. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope. Right? This is what, if you're a believer, the moment you came to faith, or well, even prior to that, when God changed your heart in regeneration, and then you're able to believe, He brought you to this living hope. And then He sees this, says it. So that's the beginning of the Christian life. But He doesn't stop there. Peter continues in his... Um, um, in his description of the Christian life, and he says, kept, the same group that was born again, kept in heaven for you, well, the, 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 sorry, the, the inheritance kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for our salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Those who are born again are being kept, are being uh, guarded by God's power for a salvation ready for to be revealed at the last time, which is the resurrection of the body. So it's God's power that's keeping the believer till the last time. And to say then that somebody can lose their salvation, say that God is not powerful enough to keep that person. Which means there's something more powerful than God. And if that's the case, part of my logic that thing is God. Whoever is more, whatever, whoever or whatever is more powerful than God, that is God. And who's who's that usually that we made that to be? Make that to be. Yes, ourselves. 
when we say a believer can lose his salvation, we say that the believer is God himself, not the God of the Bible. Any questions before we continue? All right. Now, what are some of objections to this doctrine that come up? What are some of the objections? Have you ever heard any objections to, to this doctrine? Andrew. Warning passages in Hebrews. Okay. All right, what else? Someone walks away from the faith. All right. Um, yes, what else? Any other objections? Okay, misuse of different passages like in Galatians, which would be similar to misuse of the warnings in, in Hebrews. The arguments I've come across are most more, like, more experiential than biblical. But I know somebody. Right, that tends to be the... The biblical ones, are, in my mind, are easy to, to explain and to show how those passages... It's like... A, is that Inigo Montoya that tells uh, the guy, I don't think that word means what you say, you think it means? That's easy to show when you're looking, the, 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 even from Hebrews, where often the author immediately says, but that's not you, in talking to the Christian. But that's not you. Uh, specifically in chapter 6, uh, uh, God, God is persevering, is going to preserve you to the end. There, But it tends to be more experiential. For example, the, how about those people who, that were so dedicated to Christ and all of a sudden gave up? What about them? How can you explain them? Well, there is such thing as backsliding. A Christian can backslide. It, it, it may happen to a greater or lesser degree. Our confession acknowledges that, uh, that, that, there, that, that there might be a time in a believer's life where he, he, his faith is um, severely attacked or even diminished. And some Christians do some pretty bad things that we would hardly think they are Christians as they are doing that. Right? Does the Bible support that? Can you think of examples that in the Bible that support that Christians or followers of God can do some bad things that are characteristic of unbelievers and yet they, can, they are still faithful to David, right? With adultery and murder. right? Peter with the denial of of Christ, and uh, you know David, when he's repenting in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, he doesn't ask God save me again. He asks restore the joy of my salvation. Right. So he's he himself, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, did not think that he wasn't saved and then now he is saved. It, that that he was walking away from the Lord. It's important that we realize the doctrine of the perseverance of the saint, the idea of progressive sanctification, does not teach that Christians do not sin. That's not what this is teaching. It teaches that those that have a genuine faith in Christ will be faithful to Him, even if for a time they were in rebellion. Are you with me so far? Any questions on that? Another objection... Well, another, another way to answer this, this objection is that there are non-Christians that look like Christians. And the Bible teaches that as well. There are those in the church that look like Christians but actually are children of the devil. And as, I don't know if you notice, but every Sunday 
in my, pastor, my opening prayer, I pray this. I say, Lord, change the hearts of those among us who do not believe in Jesus Christ. Notice that I never say, if there are some among us. Because Jesus said that the, church, the visible church, which is expressed in the local church, is always going to be a mix of wheat and what? Tear. That is going to be sorted out by Jesus at the last day. So there are those that seem to be believers, but they're not truly regenerate. Not all who say, Lord, Lord, are truly saved. And if you look at where that's used in the Sermon on the Mount, they gave real evidence that looked like every other Christian. And Jesus said, Matt, never knew you. He doesn't say, I knew you for a time and now I don't know you anymore. He said, I never knew you, even though they had all these, they had done miracles, they had healed people and so on. And Jesus says, I never knew you. And some have a form of godliness, but deny its power, as Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, that they have this form of godliness, but do not know the power of, of godliness. When, um, and some might appear as an angel of light, as Paul refers to in the Corinthian letters, but actually are devils. And some are like the seed that fell on the shallow ground that sprouted quickly. Remember the story of, 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 of the sowing of the seeds and there's four different grounds. One of the shallow ground and those great uh, sprouting and, and apparent fruit, but it, it lacked a foundation of faith and it withered away. All these cases <laughs> point to the fact that it's possible to have an external faith and not be a Christian, not be a true believer. In all these cases, then, should encourage us to make our calling and election sure, to cling more closely to Christ as we follow Him. Any, any questions about these things that I've said so far? Another opposition that we see, I've, I've heard said is this, will not a belief in perseverance of the saints cause people to abound in sin? After all, their salvation is guaranteed no matter what. So what's the incentive to keep on obeying? How does that strike you? What is it, what is, what is it that this is missing? What is, it, what is it this is doing? Scott? Okay, so the, the, the actual change that has happened in the Christian life, yeah. What else? Well, who is speaking? I can't, oh, there, sorry, Hannah, I didn't. There's this voice coming from the beyond. Who is it? <laughs> yes, Hannah, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. What is our natural tendency in our relationship with God. To sin. to sin, yeah. But we tend to always lean towards wanting to be in control, what has been called historically called legalism. Right? This point assumes that it is our works 
that will keep us in relationship with God. That if we don't have a carrot at the end, and we don't do these works, then we're not going to be in, then we're not going to be in a relationship with, with God. And another thing to keep in mind is that a person that uses this doctrine as an excuse for licentiousness is showing that he is not a Christian after all. If God begun a good work in a person, that person will not rejoice in sin. That's what both Scott and Hannah uh, brought up, particularly out of uh, Romans chapter 6, verses 13 and 14, where Paul says, And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So when God elects someone, he elects that person unto obedience. It clearly says that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And Peter opens that epistle by saying, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. So our very election was unto obedience. When, when we are saved, we are not only saved from the guilt of sin, but also from the power of sin. And we have to live accordingly. So this obedience is not a... Um, eternal life is not a stick, a carrot at the end of the stick. It's somehow keep us running on the uh, treadmill or whatever. Eternal life is a promise that we have. And because of what God has done, we obey. It's not that we obey unto eternal life. We're obeying because of what God has done. And that's part of progressive sanctification. Remember, our catechism teaches that sanctification is a work of what? Anybody remember the catechism question? Where is Charlotte when we need her for our catechism answer? It's, it's a work of God's grace, right? So, and we participate in that. There's a synergistic nature to it because it's a work of God's grace in which we die unto sin, more and more unto sin, and live more and more unto righteousness. It, it, it feels like work, like Paul says in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Uh, but it is God who is working in us to want, to will, and to do of his good pleasure. And when we're done... All these accomplishments, we look back and say, this is was God's grace. And when God rewards us for the good works that we did as believers, He's rewarding for His work in our lives, since our own sanctification is by uh, the grace of God. Any questions before we continue? All right, so sanctification is what's going on in this life. That's where we spend most of our time experientially in, is in the process as a believer in the process of uh, progressive sanctification. And that leads us to the ultimate work, uh, the, the, not the ultimate, but the last work of God, or act of God, is not a work, an act of God in us, and that is glorification. And when you think of salvation, we use it often in our parlance as a very specific uh, term to mean that moment we come to faith in Christ. But the Bible is speaks of salvation to cover the entire work of God, sometimes even referring to election as, as salvation, going through uh, 
sanctification. And often the Bible uses three different tenses when talking about salvation. Use the past tense. Talk about the Christian has been saved from the guilt and penalty of sin. You know, think of a passage that talks about the fact that uh, the Christian has been saved in the past, in his historical or her historical past, and he has been saved from the guilt and the penalty of sin. Anyone? Anyone? It's important that we can defend what we believe from the scriptures, because otherwise we don't have any authority if we're speaking apart from Ephesians 1. Right? And blessed, past tense. Same books, next chapter. Super famous passage. For, yeah, for by grace you have been saved. And it's interesting that it's a, uh, uh, it, it, the way that it's written, he doesn't necessarily use just a simple verb. He uses a combination to show that the, for by grace you are in a state of having been saved. So that there's no doubt that that's what's, what is going on. There, so you can see that the, the 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 word saved or salvation is used in the past tense to talk about the fact that we have been saved from the guilt and penalty of sin. It's also used in the present tense in the, to show the fact that the Christian is being saved from the power of sin. We have been saved from the guilt, we have been saved from the penalty, and we are currently being saved from the power of sin. That's what we call sanctification. We're dying to sin, right? Sin no no longer has dominion over us. So, it, but it still, it, it has some power. There's the, the, the old man dwells kind of in our members, and we are pulling that off, putting the old man off, and putting on the new man in Jesus Christ. And the, the sin has less and less power over us as we progress in sanctification. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul says, For the message of the cross is foolish to those who are perishing, but to us, talking about himself and the Christians, who are being saved are being saved, so there's this present tense, it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 15, 2, by which also you are being saved, talking about the gospel, so the gospel also fuels our sanctification. And then there's a future tense to salvation, the creation will be completely saved someday from the very presence of sin. In this life, sin is always going to be present in our lives, though in diminishing fashion, but there will be a day when is going to be completely eliminated from that. Paul talks about that when he says in Romans 5, verses 9 and 10, much more than, ha- much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Talking about the final judgment there. And he continues, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, how much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life, talking about that final deliverance in the resurrection, in our final glorification. Any questions or comments on this? And that's this last part that we want to talk about when we talk about glorification. So what is glorification? Let's attempt a definition. What is glorification? Anyone? Anyone? Okay, an exchange of the physical body for the spiritual. All right. Any other refinement or addition? Or Rick? Uh, it could be more Christ, like Christ. It would be more like Christ. All right. What else? By the way, this doctrine 
is not labeled that, that way. But in Titus chapter 2, Paul says that is our blessed hope. So we better know what it is because it is our blessed hope. That's what, that's what caused us to keep on going is this doctrine. So if we don't know it, then it's great because then we're going to get to know it and really be able to keep on moving forward. Yes, Andrew. When we no longer see through the glass dimly, then we shall see him face to face. Okay, all right. It, Scott. It's our uh, ultimate sanctification, <coughs> the final sanctification, and, and I would add to Nick, Nick's statement that um, our, our final and ultimate glorification isn't just spiritual because our physical bodies have to be renewed and, and Correct. Per- perfected, and that perfected body and our perfected souls are Yes, so it's a physical thing as well as spiritual. What else? Anything else? Linda? It's the process of becoming more like Jesus. So let's not use the word process. It is the act of finally becoming completely like Jesus, right? Because it's like, remember the language that uh, Paul uses? The twinkling of an eye. It is, it's not a, no, it's like boom, and that's, that's that. There, but yes, you're right. Is is the becoming ultimately, completely like Jesus? Anything else, Kevin? That's Dr. Backus, by the way, um, over there. Um, when Grace was young, she had a fish named after him. Uh, 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 I think it was a beta fish, which is a feisty one, which makes a lot of sense. So, uh, yes, Dr. Backus. Yes, first. John 3 talks about the love of God, the kind of love that God has given us, that we will see Him as He is, for we shall be like, like Him. Anything else about glorification? So what we're doing, we're talking about the nature of glorification, that is, we're defining glorification here. And glorification encompasses the whole person body and soul, I think in the last 150 years, at least in the United States, we have forgotten about the physicality of eternal life and have talked about eternal life being like Casper the friendly ghost, you know, these disembodied souls and, and so on. That's not the ultimate hope. The ultimate hope is a physical uh, existence in the presence of God through Christ. Uh, our relationship with the Trinity is always going to be mediated through Christ, through all eternity. And it is true that the souls of believers are at their death are made perfect and do immediately pass into glory. That's what Catechism, sorry, Catechism 37 says. So once one dies in Christ, his soul is, is purified completely, sinless and goes in the presence of God. So, uh, uh, Cam's dad, the moment of his death, he went to be in the presence of his Savior. His soul is with the Lord to this day. It's also true that the state of believers in heaven is a more blessed state than the one of the believers who are alive. That's a true statement. Do you agree with that? You should, since I said it's true, right? Uh, But do you agree with the statement that the state of believers in heaven is a more blessed state than the one of the believers who are alive. 
that's usually what the church holds, the, the broadly evangelical church holds to, if they, it holds to anything. That, that, that when we die and go to heaven, this is it. This is the eternal bliss and so on. And it's true, the Bible teaches that it's better than here. Can you think of a passage that might teach that? Exactly. So uh, uh, Philippians 1, you know, Paul is having this self-discussion with, with himself. This is a self-discussion. And it uh, says, uh, try and decide, should I, do, should I go, should I stay? Well, being with the Lord is far better, but you need me here still. Right? So he talks about that uh, there. All that being true, though, heaven now is not the best and most glorious state for the believer. Heaven now is not the most, the best and most glorious state for the, 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 the believer. The period uh, between the death of believers and the resurrection at the return of Christ is called the intermediate state, the in-between state between our souls being glorified and our bodies being glorified. And Paul speaks of this period as desirable only because it is temporary. He says that in Second Corinthians. Oh, look at that. I have the Bible passage. Second uh, Corinthians 5, 1 through 5, where he says, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, talking about our body right now, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desire to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. So he talks about this, the state of being dead now in our souls in heaven, as a state of being naked, looking forward to that final body that Christ is giving to us. For we who are in this tent grown, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed. You see there? He says, we just don't want to be, the idea is not just be rid of this body and being souls in heaven. We want to be further clothed with the eternal body at the resurrection. And he's fighting this notion that taught that the physical was ungodly. The physical was bad. A spiritual life apart from the body was better than a spiritual life in the body. And the idea that, that eternity had anything to do with the flesh, the, 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 the physical, would be a bad thing. So it's no, no, no. That's not how God uh, made us. He continues, But further close that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So that's what we're looking forward to, the resurrection. Uh, what we call heaven now is just a, a, a stop in the journey to the resurrection. As a matter of fact, a while ago we had a, a, some lessons on heaven, and the Bible rarely uses the word heaven to refer to the place of the, where the souls of the righteous are currently you know, is usually the word heaven is reserved for the eternal life, the physical eternal life, uh, the coming of Jesus Christ. Can you think of any other passage that might, that might talk about souls in heaven looking forward to something even better than what they're having right now? In the book of Revelation, there's this passage there in Revelation 6, when the saints in heaven are... Have, have a desire for something more than their souls being in heaven with God. It says, 
When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So there's this idea. They're looking forward to something else than just being in heaven with the Lord. Any questions or comments on that? So we need to realize that death is not the ultimate experience for which Christians should long. Um, have you ever heard of justification by death? Often, uh, when we interview little kids, they, they talk about, you know, uh, why, why, why should you go to heaven? Why, what, you know, how do you get to heaven? By dying. That's not quite what we're looking for, right? <laughs> That's not really the ultimately why you get to, to heaven. But death is not the ultimate Christian experience. It's not what we're looking for. That's not what we're longing for. We're looking for, longing for the resurrection. The Christian's blessed hope is the glorious appearing of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, at whose coming those who have died in the faith and those who are alive at the time of His coming will be changed. That's our hope. That's what we're looking forward to. You can see that in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. You can see that in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 54. Our catechism in question 38 says that the resurrection believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. And at this point, Christians will enter upon their glorified state, the goal toward which the Trinity has been relentlessly driving from the moment of creation. From the moment of creation, history is driving to the resurrection of, and, and the consummation of times. Um, at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the events that follow the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's our blessed hope. That's what we're looking forward is the resurrection of the coming of Jesus Christ. Any, any questions or comments? All right. So next time, we're going to take a look at the meaning of glorification for Christians and uh, see how that impacts the way that we live now and then uh, we're going to see that holiness really is the result of, hope, of our hope in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in the future. Any final comments or questions before we close in prayer? All right, so let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you are good to us. We thank you that you've given us the hope of the resurrection. We pray that we live in light of that hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.